Today uh, is Celebration Sunday for our Next Five initiative. If you're new with us, we've been working uh, over the last uh, six to eight weeks through a series of messages, casting vision for the next five years of ministry here as a church, here in the heart of Rockwall County, here particularly within Fate, um, as the Lord has planted roots here for us. Uh, what we envision the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, however the lo- long the Lord tarries looking like here, and the things that we're committed to. A part of that initiative was finding and funding a permanent home, and we asked folks to engage in partnership with us to do that uh, through financial contributions, through giving, through a commitment that they would make. And I'll share with you here in a moment about where we stand as of today in those commitments. But this morning, as we kind of bring this to a close on what we're calling Celebration Sunday, I want to preach a message entitled Celebrating God's Faithfulness to Us from 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 to 25. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. Uh, it's there in the Old Testament. Um, you, you can find it in your table of contents if you need to. And that's okay. Just look in there. It'll show you where it's at in your Bible. Uh, but 2 Kings chapter 13, picking up in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 25. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. And so you can follow along there this morning as we read as well. But 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, the author writes these words. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it, and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight these Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now the band of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the band was and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, opposed and oppressed Israel in all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and He turned towards them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He would not destroy them, nor has He cast them from His presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Abinadad, his son, took his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Benadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoaz, his father in war. Three times Jehoaz defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. This is God's Word. As we enter into Celebration Sunday 
this morning, I just want to preach again to us this message from this text entitled Celebrating God's Faithfulness. Over the last two weeks, we've received commitments from a whole host of individuals who are a part of our congregation of member families. And as of today, uh, we've received commitments from 70% of our member families here at Redeemer. And it's been for a grand total of $312,730 that has been pledged and committed. Some of that's been given up front and is already sitting in the bank. And some of that has been pledged to be given over the course of the next three years as we work toward our pursuit of finding and funding a permanent home, finding land and a facility out of which we could operate seven days a week instead of just one. And so that's where we stand today. And that's an average commitment. Listen, I'd use the calculator, all right, because you don't want to trust my math skills coming out of this noggin, okay? So a calculator and percentage calculators online, and I checked it several times, but that's an average of $11,168 per family. And so I just want to say thank you to those member families who have stepped forward in their generosity journey and have taken that next step to partner with us as we aim to see where the Lord's leading and how He's going to provide. So thank you, thank you, thank you. However, I cannot help but think about where we might be if 80% of our member families took that step with us or 90% of our member families took that step with us if we move toward the next five. And if the average held across those added families, then 80% of, of, of our families committing will look like 346,000. 90% will look like 390,000. And if by God's grace somehow we were to reach 100% commitment and the average held, we would be looking at receiving $435,000 in commitments over the next three years. And so as we think today about where the Lord has us and where we are headed, I just want to let you know, hey, there's still time if you're a member family here at Redeemer and have not stepped forward and made a commitment. I know I've had several people talk to me and they're like, I don't know where I'm going to be working next month. And they're like, can we wait to turn in a commitment? I'm like, yes, please do, right? right? We don't want you to step forward and pledge anything that you will don't feel, like you have a good conscience that you'll be able to fulfill because you don't know where your paycheck's going to come from in the next month. But most of us probably aren't in that position. And so while the 312 isn't the 530 we were aiming for, what I would encourage you is if you're one of those families who's maybe a, a late signer-upper, right? You register for everything late and you turn in everything late. If that's you, right, then there's commitment cards at the kiosk today. Just, this is just for our member families. If you're a guest with us, we don't want a dime from you, okay? But our member families, uh, grab a commitment card and prayerfully consider how the Lord might be leading you in that, right? Uh, I, I told our elders this and I told our next five team this. I still believe and I don't know where it's going to come from yet, but I still believe the Lord's going to provide every dollar that we need to do everything He has called us to do in this community. Right? And so we're by faith trusting the Lord's going to provide as we continue to take steps forward. And maybe that's families that join over the next three years as we're on this journey together and they get engaged and they get excited and they commit to being a part of what the Lord's doing here in our church. But this morning, I want us to turn our attention to this passage of Scripture in 2 Kings as we celebrate what the Lord's already provided and trust Him that He's going to continue to do so. Okay? So that's... That's, that's kind of setting up where we're at and where we're headed today. So in this particular text, there's three things I want us to see together. Right? There's a rebuke, and there's hope, and there's, 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 there's faithfulness. All right? So all three of these things in the text. So the first thing I want us to see in the text this morning is this, is that in this particular text, there is a rebuke for the half-hearted. A rebuke for the half-hearted. 
in verses 14 to 19, right, the prophet Elisha, okay, he was the one upon whom the prophet Elijah rested his mantle whenever Elijah is taken up to heaven by chariots of fire. Elisha follows after Elijah in that line of succession of the prophets of Israel. And in verses 14 and 19, the prophet Elisha, is, he is now on his deathbed, okay? So he has become ill with the illness of which he was to die. That's how the text words it, right? So in other words, he's on his deathbed, right? Hospice is there attending to his needs, whatever the ancient world hospice looked like, okay? But that's what's going on for Elisha right now. And yet in his illness, in, on his deathbed, he still has the clarity of mind, the lucidity to engage in the prophetic ministry that the Lord had called him to, and he gives this prophetic word to King Joash. Now, when Joash comes to Elisha, he is distraught. You notice it in the text because he comes and he says, Father, my father, right? So this veneration of Elisha for the prophetic anointing and gifting that the Lord had given him. And then he says, Israel's horsemen and chariots. And so it's like he's throwing himself at Elisha's feet saying this, When you're gone, will our armies be able to withstand the attacks from the nations around us because the king recognized that a word from the prophet was more powerful than all of Israel's army combined. So will we be able to fend off the Syrians and the Moabites and the marauding armies that would come to invade our borders? How will we fare against them whenever you're gone? Right, because again, Joash recognizes the prophet's prayers and his works were more powerful than the armies. And he's asking, who's going to replace you? Who's going to come in your stead? In the same way that Elijah rested his mantle upon you, upon whom will that be transferred? Elisha, whenever you are gone. Who will we look to for divine help in our hour of need? And it's in this exchange that the prophet tells the king to draw an arrow out. And so the king draws an arrow and he says, now draw the bow. And the king draws his bow and he says, open the window. So he opens the window. He gives him all these simple instructions. And then Elisha takes his hands. Right? You can imagine like, I don't know, like the movie Ghost, you know, with uh, Patrick Swayze putting the hands on the potter's wheel. Together. Right? That's kind of what's going on here, right? So he puts his hands on the, on, on the king's hands and they together draw the arrow back and he says, shoot it out of the east window and shoot it out of the east window because you're aiming it and shooting it towards Syria. And so he draws it back and he fires it as far as he can. And as that arrow cuts through the air, Elijah speaks these words. He says, the, Lord, the Lord's our arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. In fact, the commentators will say that when Elisha places his hands on the king's hands, it was, this, it was this image of divine support, this image of divine help, that the prophet was alongside the king, and that God was with them both as they stood against Israel's armies. That is representative of, of conveying of grace and power and authority. And then Elisha makes this pronouncement as the arrow cuts through the air, saying, this is the Lord's arrow of victory. He's going to give you victory over the Syrians. Now listen, the shooting of the arrow is not just like an object lesson or a visual aid for the prophecy that Elisha gives. No, it's more than that. Combined with that pronouncement, it has the power to set the future in motion. Right? That's what is going on here. And it's important to understand this because of what comes next in the text. 
Okay, because the next thing that happens in the text is Elisha, after he shoots the arrow, makes the pronouncement, the Lord's arrow of victory is going to give you victory over your enemies. He says this, strike the ground with the arrows. He gives the king some further instructions. So in other words, he says, take the rest of the arrows out of your quiver, and I want you to strike the ground with it. Now when he says strike the ground with it, I take that to mean take them all, draw them all back, and shoot them all out the window toward the east, and strike them into the ground so that they pierce, cut through the air, and penetrate the soil. Right? So shoot all of the arrows out the window. Take your arrows and strike the ground. And what does the king do in that moment? The text is very explicitly clear. It says in verse 18, he struck three times and stopped. So he only strikes the ground with half of his arrows. How do we know they're half of his arrows? Because in the very next verse, it says the man of God was angry with the king. And he rebukes him. He says, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times see the king had five or six arrows in his quiver but he only uses half of them as the prophet instructs him to strike the ground with the arrows this means that this prophetic word pronounced about victory over the syrians would be impartial and incomplete because of half-hearted obedience of the king and the lack of faith in the promise of god now you're like what does all that mean (laughs) right Here's the reality, is what's going on in 1 Kings chapter 13 has been Israel's story from her inception of a half-hearted obedience, only going halfway in what the Lord had instructed her to do and what the Lord had commanded. Right, consider a couple of examples. In Numbers chapter 14, the Israelites, remember they'd seen this miraculous delivery as they passed through the Red Sea and the waters like, swallow up the Egyptians. So they've seen God move in miraculous ways on their behalf already. And yet they come to the the threshold of the land of promise that was promised to Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob. The land that was flowing with milk and honey. They come to the, 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 the threshold of that land and they say, we're not sure that we can take it. Right? And so what do we need to do? We need to figure out what's going on in there. So they send spies in. How many spies do they send? They send 12 spies, one from each tribe. And those spies go into the land. They scout out their land. They see the armies of the land. They see the giants in the land. They see everything in the land. And they come back and give a report. And 10 of them say, listen, it's a bad place. Okay? We have no business going in there and trying to take ground. And two of them, who? Joshua and Caleb, they rip their clothes and cry out and say, it is an exceedingly good land that the Lord has provided for us, but who does the people listen to? They listen to the ten and not the two, and as a result, the 40 days they spent spying out the land, God says, you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness because you wouldn't trust me and take a step of faith and move forward in full obedience. In addition, in addition, when they do come into the land of Canaan, God had commanded them to drive out the peoples who were living there. Right, to put an end to the nations who were occupying that territory. To tear down their altars. To decimate the high places of worship of these other gods. But whenever Israel enters into the land, what happens? Does she drive out all the people? Does she tear down the altars? Does she decimate the high places? No. 
Right? She begins to settle in, and she begins to give her daughters and sons in marriage to their daughters and sons, and she begins the process known as syncretism. You know what syncretism is? It's whenever you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you mix it all up in a bowl, and you try to have it all together. And so they took the worship of Yahweh, their God, their covenant God, that had delivered them from Egypt, and they said, we'll take a little bit of these Baals and a little bit of these Asherahs, and we'll take a little bit of these idols, and whenever we need things that the Baals can provide, we'll go and worship them. But whenever we need things that the Asherahs can provide, we'll go and worship them. But we need things that Yahweh can provide, we'll go and worship them. And God, over and over and over again, would rebuke Israel and discipline Israel because they would not look to Yahweh for everything. Because they only went halfway. Right? This has been Israel's story from her inception, from the time that God calls her out of the land of Egypt. She's only known half-hearted obedience and a lack of faith in the promises and provision of God. And what we see here in this text is that half-heartedness, church, it will never enjoy the fullness of the Lord's provision and blessing. It will never enjoy the fullness of that. Right? That's why the prophet says, you would have struck down the Syrians until they were annihilated if you had gone all the way. You understood, king, that the, the prophet's word and his pronouncement was the defeat of the Syrians, and I tell you to shoot the arrows, you only shoot half of them, you would have decimated the Syrians and not had to worry about them any longer, but you only went halfway. Now, I know that we as God's people don't, all, don't go halfway, right? We go all the way, all the time, right? We're all in, all the time, all the chips at the center of the table, right? We're, we're, we're all in. But the reality is that just as Israel was half-hearted in her obedience and did not trust the Lord's provision and walk by faith, so also are we many times. Oftentimes, right, we get to the end of the day and we still have arrows in our quiver that we have not shot, because we've only gone halfway. Like, let me give you a few examples. Right? Instead of mortifying sin in our lives and putting it to death, we just manage it at times. Right? And so rather than saying we're going to cut this out of our lives, we're going to crush its head into the ground. Right? We're going to crush the head of the serpent and the same that God would crush the head of the serpent right, through his son Jesus. But rather than, rather than us really just putting sin behind us and mortifying it, that's the old Puritan language about putting sin to death in your life, Go read the King James Version, right? Mortifying sin. We just kind of manage it. And we say, hey, well, I, 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 can, I can go this far, but I'm not going to really go all the way. Because right? I'll still entertain some thoughts. I'll still entertain some desires. I'll still entertain some values that I know have been pressed into me by the world that's around me. I'm not going to root those things out of my life. I'm just going to kind of manage them as best as I can rather than mortifying sin. Or we pray half-heartedly, not really expecting that God can move a mountain with mustard seed-like faith in the only sufficient object, right? Because when Jesus says that, he makes that statement about faith as small as a mustard seed, being able to say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would happen. He's not saying this. He's not saying you need a massive amount of faith. He's saying all you really need is a very small amount of faith placed in the appropriate object of faith, and you can move mountains. Mountains are able to be moved. But rather than praying as if we believe that to be true, we pray half-hearted prayers, not really expecting God to show up. Or we give half-heartedly or sporadically if we give anything at all. We witness inconsistently. 
Right? We don't share our faith as we should whenever the Spirit prompts us. Maybe we go right, halfway, but we don't go all the way to really sharing the truth of the gospel. Right? We, 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 we show up and we serve someone who's in their need, but we never speak a word about why we're serving that individual. We never share about Jesus. We never ask them about their salvation. We just serve and expect that that's going to get it done. Right? It's not either or. It's a, it's a both and of those things. All right, we eat nothing but processed content from other preachers or authors rather than the whole food of the Word of God, right? So we've got all kinds of proce- uh, 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 processed foods circulating around the Internet, okay? On all kinds of Facebook pages and Instagram posts. We've got memes and all those kinds of things. All that is processed, okay? This book right here is like whole food, Okay? Right? So when you go to the store and you want to buy organic, premium, grass-fed, cage-free, right, free-range meat, it's right here. Okay? The stuff that we read on memes on Instagram, that's all processed. Okay? So we go halfway and we have kind of this Instagram memeable, tweetable kind of faith, but not something that is supported and sustained by the whole food of God's Word. There are churches and mission agencies that experience only partial victory rather than the fullness of God's blessing because they half-heartedly obey God and refuse to walk in faith and trust Him. And then some of us step back and wonder why other agencies or other missionaries or other pastors or other leaders or other churches are flourishing in the face of the same obstacles. And it may it be, may it be, that there's a lack of wholeheartedness So here's a question for you this morning, church. What arrows are you still holding on to? What arrows have you refused to fire? What arrows are still in the quiver rather than cutting through the air and striking the ground? Where are the arrows in your life? In this text, there is a rebuke for the half-hearted. And they're refusal to walk in fullness of obedience and trusting that God that God will do what God's promised to do as we walk in faith and see the victory that he's accomplished for us and see it manifest before our eyes a rebuke for the half-hearted but not only is there a rebuke for the half-hearted here let me tell you all second thing there's hope for the hopeless there is hope for the hopeless in verse 20 there's some interesting stuff in this passage all right let me just go ahead and make Make it plain. Some interesting stuff. But in verse 20, we read about the death of Elisha, okay? And the spring invasion of the Moabites. So every year in the spring, when the rains would come, the Moabites would invade, and they would overthrow, they would maraud, they would do all, all kinds of havoc within Israel. And it says, upon the death of Elisha, right, at that time of the year, that there was, uh, there, there's a short story about this nameless Israelite man who dies and was being buried during the Moabite invasion. Now, Elisha had evidently been dead for quite some time at this point whenever this particular incident takes place because it says when he's thrown into the grave, he didn't fall on Elijah's corpse, he didn't fall on Elijah's body, he falls on Elisha's bones, his bones, right? But when this Moabites begin to invade, these men, these undertakers are out trying to bury the body of this nameless Israelite man, right? And they see the invading army coming over the hill and they're like, we got to get out of here quick, Right? And so instead of digging him his own tomb or gently placing him in the tomb where he was designated to go, what do they do? They just 
chuck him into Elisha's tomb. And whenever he's chucked into Elisha's tomb, he falls onto Elisha's bones. And we're told in the text that whenever he touches Elisha's bones, when he falls on Elisha's bones, what happens? The man stands up and he walks again. Amazing. Maybe I'm the only one who gets excited about that, but that's pretty stinking incredible, right? Now, it's, what's important to recognize is when this man makes contact with the bones of Elisha, he's revived, stands on his feet, but this is not a resurrection because this man doesn't get a glorified body. He's not never to die again. He's like Lazarus in the New Testament. Whenever Jesus shows up at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus walks out of the tomb, having once been dead, now alive. But guess what? This old man and Lazarus, they would die again. Or like the young girl when... That everybody thinks this young girl is dead because she has died, and Jesus walks in and takes her by the hand and says she's asleep. And he says, Get up, little girl. That's what the Aramaic means, right? When he says, Get up, little girl, and grabs her hand and pulls her back to life. He revivifies them, he revives them, gives them life once again. But they would eventually experience death at a later date that would be final for them. So they're not resurrected, but they're revivified. The power of God. Though Elisha was dead, God was not. And he was still at work through the old prophet's bones there in the tomb to bring this man back to his feet and give him life once again. Now listen, it's important for me at this point to say something about a couple of practices in the church that have emerged over the course of the last several centuries, right, and and millennia as well, um, in relation to texts like this one. The first one is this, is that there is a, at times it tends to be like a veneration of relics within the life of churches, right? If I could just get a vial of Mary's milk, right? Or a lock of Samson's hair, okay? Or if I could just find Peter's bones in his tomb, I could touch him and it would bring healing to my body, right? That's not what this text is teaching, church, okay? Second thing this text is not teaching is it's not teaching the practice of grave-sucking, you're like, what in the world is grave-sucking, right? That's a practice that's emerged in certain church circles in which people believe that if they go lay on the tomb, lay on the grave of a very anointed pastor, a very anointed missionary, very powerful prophet or priest, that that anointing would have been transferred to them and they'd be able to walk in that anointing throughout the course of their life and ministries. But that's not what this is teaching either. Listen, if that was true, I would be on the first plane to London standing in a very long line to lay on the tomb of Charles Spurgeon, all right? If that were true. But that's not what this text is teaching either. Right? So it's not teaching us to garner these anointings from these people who have died or find these relics that would bring these supernatural powers into our lives. And so if that's not the point, then what is the point of this story where this old Israelite man is brought back to life after he comes into contact with Elisha's bones? Listen, this, the point of the story is this. It's a miracle and a picture of what God can do by His power for His people. It's a miracle. See, the question that Israel was asking, if you read the rest of Kings and you read the books of Chronicles, right, you'll see over and over again that kings would emerge in the land and there were very few good kings, right, a lot of really bad kings who would lead the people away into the worship of other gods. 
right, into idolatry and deeper and deeper spiritual bondage to these gods of the nations. Right? And so Israel continued to move further and further and further and further and further away from God. Right? In her rebellion, in her resistance, in her sin, in her folly and foolishness, in her idolatry. Over and over and over again, Israel was like her half-hearted obedience went to 40% and then 30% and then 20% and then 10% as she's led astray to the worship of these other gods and the gods of the nations. And so the question for Israel at this point, because they were on the threshold of an exile, right? God, it was like God had drawn a line in the sand and said, enough is enough. These people will not profane my name here in this land any longer. So he's raising up the nations around them to come invade and carry them away into exile. And so the question for Israel was this, are we done? Is God done with us? After all of our sin, after all of our foolishness, after all of our resistance to God, after all our rebellion against God, are we done? And so this story is not just about one Israelite man who's thrown into the tomb of an Israelite prophet who had been dead for a couple of years and comes back to life. What do you do with that, right? If that's just an individual story, but this story is about the nation itself. Does God have the power to bring life where there is nothing but death and decay because of sin and rebellion? And the resounding answer that God gives to His people through the author of 2 Kings and this story is that yes, God can once again bring life. He can bring joy. He can bring fullness of everything that we believe we have thrown away because of our sin and rebellion. God is able to restore. He's able to bring that nation back to life. His people that He has not abandoned or forsaken or given up on. They were going to experience this death-like exile, being cut off from the land, being cut off from the temple. But these two verses say to the people that God is not done with them. Because even though Elisha's dead, he is not. He is not. And so church, listen this morning. You may find yourself in a hopeless situation. A situation in which you believe that you, 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 you've come to the end of yourself, right? And you realize how helpless you are. And whether that be because of your sin or whether that be because of someone else's sin, right? you find yourself in this position of discouragement. You find yourself in this position of despair, of despondency. And I want you to know that God's word to you this morning as well is that if you find yourself in a hopeless situation because God is not dead, there is still hope. There is still hope. Maybe the end in, in the midst of a hopeless family situation with your spouse, if you're married. And I want you to know that if you're in the midst of if you're at the end of your own rope when it comes to your marriage, God is not the, at the end of his. He's still able and powerful to intervene and to restore. I want you to know that if it's with a child or with another family member, with a brother, sister, sibling, mother or father, that God is able to restore he is not done he is not dead his power has not run out he's able to intervene 
and to reconcile and to restore. No matter what hopeless situation you may find yourself in, God is not dead. That was His word to the people. Through this little two verses situated here in 2 Kings, as they got ready for this death-like experience of exile, that He wasn't done with them. I'm telling you this morning, church, He's not done with us. He's not done with us. Maybe you're discouraged by our, our, our inability. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. Because I'll, I'll just be real transparent with you. I was super encouraged going into Commitment Sunday and a little bit inflated coming out of it. But as I've processed what the Lord is doing, right, I want you to know that if you find yourself in that same position, maybe you're discouraged because we didn't hit the 5.30 target that we were shooting for. I want you to know something. Right? Maybe you're in that position and you're like, man, I, I, I prayed and I leveraged and I committed and we're giving. And it, it, you're just discouraged to hear that, you know, 30 or 35 percent of the church is kind of like, yeah, maybe we'll commit, maybe we won't. I want you to know something. There's hope. God's not done. He's not done. I believe he's going to provide everything that we need to do, everything that he's called us to do. There is hope for the hopeless. There's a rebuke for the half-hearted. And there's hope for the hopeless. But the third thing in this text that I want us to see this morning is this. Is that while there is a rebuke and while there is the offer of hope, I want you to know that both of those things come out of the heart of a God who is faithful to all. He's faithful to the half-hearted and He's faithful to the hopeless. Like, where do you see that in the text? Listen, the big idea of this section of 2 Kings, and that's, this section starts in chapter 11, verse 1, and runs through chapter 16, verse 20, is this, is that God extends grace, patience, and steadfast love toward His rebellious people. Because in 2 Kings, what you see acting out on the stage of human history in the lives of God's people, the nation of Israel, is you see the declarations of Exodus chapter 34, where God refuses to destroy His people, though they committed idolatry with the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. And whenever Moses goes back up to receive the tablets for a second time, God says this, The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and merciful. And then he, that, that, that language and imagery gets picked up again in places like Psalm 145, which Alyssa read a portion of for us at the beginning of our service. I'll read the other portion. It starts in verse 1, and it says this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall put forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. God is faithful to the half-hearted. God is faithful to the hopeless and the helpless, those who are discouraged and despondent. God is faithful, church. 
And in 2 Kings chapter 13, we read about two aspects of his faithfulness. At the end of that chapter, it's like put on full 8K, right? Edge lit, 240 motion rate, 86 inches of screen, right? It's put on full home theater resolution display, the faithfulness of God. You're like, where is that? In verses 24 and 25, church, look at how you see the Lord's faithfulness, even to the half-hearted king. Because in response to the prophetic word uttered by Elisha, God keeps his word, and there are three victories that Joash has over the king of Syria that would recover some of the cities of Israel. God would be faithful to keep his word, even to the half-hearted king who refused to go all the way in full obedience to what the prophet had instructed him to do. God was still faithful. He gets the victories, not complete victory, but every victory that God had promised as the king walked in faith to believe him for. The second place you see his faithfulness is in verses 22 and 23. We see that the Lord is faithful not only to his prophetic word, but to his promise. Notice why God refuses to destroy his people. What does he say? Not because he likes them a lot, right? (laughs) That's not what it says. Then say, God refused to destroy Israel because, right, they were good enough, smart enough, and doggone enough people liked him, right? Doesn't say God refuses to destroy Israel, right, because, you know, they, they, they were on his good side that day, okay? He woke up on the right side of the bed, and so his mercy was flowing, right, generously and graciously to them. It says that God did not destroy his people. He had not to that point, and he would not because of his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob because God was a faithful, covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God. That's why He didn't destroy them. That's why His anger burned for a moment. That's why He is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. His mercy is over all that he made, even the half-hearted and the hopeless. That he's faithful to us all, church. And the faithfulness of God, listen, it ought to lead us to repentance, not being an excuse for our continued rebellion. Instead of managing sin, we ought to mortify it. Put it to death in our lives. Instead of half-hearted faith and obedience in, in our prayer life, we ought to believe and trust that Jesus, because of Jesus, that God is able, He's powerful, He's mighty. The Holy Spirit is able to intervene and move mountains if we trust in the sufficient object. Right? You can't trust in yourself to get things done in your life. You can't trust in your spouse to get things done in your life. You can't trust in your kids to get things done in your life. You can't trust in your parents to get things done in your life. You can't trust in your coworkers to get things done in your life. He says, trust in the Lord. He's faithful to show up, to deliver, to restore, to heal. Right? There's hope for rebels through repentance. Because God is faithful not to destroy His people because of the promise that He's made. And I want you to know something this morning as we close. That the greatest place that you see the faithfulness of God in His covenant-keeping, promise-keeping nature. It's a part of who He is. Right? We may make promises all the time and break them. 
okay? We may enter into contracts and agreements all the time and back out of them, but God has always, always, in every instance, kept covenant and kept promise. And the place that you see that most beautifully and brilliantly is at the cross. That's where you see it. You know why? Because God had pledged not to destroy His people based on that covenant, but He did destroy someone in their place. His name was Jesus Christ. And rather than destroying us, church, what God saw fit to do is to destroy His own Son for us. That Jesus would live a perfect, pure, and sinless life. And that He would be strung up on a cross and He would die a sinner's death as all of the wrath of God against sin, against my sin, against your sin, would fall on Jesus because He would be faithful not to destroy us, but He destroyed someone in our place. And if that doesn't lead your heart to rejoice, then your heart's broken. Your heart's broken. And maybe you think, well, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I've been too half-hearted, too quarter-hearted, right? I've been too 10%-ish. But I want you to know that if that's what you're thinking right now, you're the perfect candidate for grace. The perfect candidate for grace. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan author in a book called The Bruised Reed, said it well. He said it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Because God is faithful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. His mercy is over all that He has made. And that includes you. No matter how half-hearted you have been. No matter how hopeless you are now. He is faithful to you in the midst of this moment. And He will be faithful to you in the midst of the next moment. And He will be faithful to you in the midst of the next moment. And He's proven that He would be at the cross through the person and work of His Son. And so we celebrate His faithfulness this morning. And the way that we celebrate His faithfulness, church, listen, is by shooting all the arrows. You pull them all out of the quiver and you keep shooting. So as God commands, you walk by faith and obedience to Him and keep shooting the arrows. You don't leave anything in the quiver at the end of the day. That's how you celebrate His faithfulness. You celebrate His faithfulness by finding hope in the power of God to transform, turn around, and restore any broken situation in your life. You celebrate God's faithfulness by shooting the arrows and finding hope in His power. So as we move forward as a church, the question is, will we empty our quivers? And no matter what faces us, no matter what we're staring at through the windshield, may we look through the rearview mirror and see that God destroyed His own Son so that He would not have to destroy us. And that would give us hope in the midst of our heartache. That would give us hope in the midst of our discouragement. That would give us hope in the midst of our despair. That would give us hope in the midst of our infighting. That would give us hope in the midst of our family situations. That would give us hope for today and tomorrow. Shoot the arrows. Find hope in His power. 
Celebrate His faithfulness, church. Let me pray to that end for us. Father, today, I pray that You would help us not to be satisfied with a half-hearted obedience with an inc- with incomplete an incompleteness Father we know that there will be in one regard an incompleteness in our lives until glory comes but may we not settle for it help us today to draw another arrow And fire it out the window. Because the arrow of your wrath against sin pierced the heart of your son. And through him you gain victory over sin, gain victory over the grave, gain victory over the power of Satan and the world and the flesh. Through him, through the arrow piercing his heart, So help us pull the arrows out of our quiver and walk in faith and full obedience. May we be reminded of your power to restore anything and everything in our lives. You proved it with that old man in the tomb of Elisha. You proved it as Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave. You proved it as He took the hand of the little girl and said, little girl, get up. And you proved it fully and finally, Father, whenever Your Son was resurrected from the grave, never to die again. And that we who are in Him by faith can look forward to that future as well. And if you are able to overcome the grave, you're able to overcome any other sorrow, any other sadness, any other sickness in our lives. Help us to celebrate the fact that you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. That you're faithful to your word, faithful to your promise. And so may we put one foot in front of the other and walk in obedience in full faith. Knowing that you have provided and that you will provide everything that we need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.